From the Office of Undergraduate Admissions at the George Washington University, this is GW Unfiltered, the student-led podcast where we get unfiltered about all things GW, meant to be listened to over a cup of coffee. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. We say their names and the names of too many before them, not only out of respect, but to acknowledge that racism, oppression, and violence are experienced unequally in our society. But what are we doing as an institution to support and empower our Black community? How are we holding ourselves accountable in the fight against racial injustice? This is what we will be discussing on today's episode, GW in Solidarity. Today, your host is Hannah Sturgis, a senior from Smyrna, Delaware, majoring in theater and journalism and mass communications. She's going to talk to a few members of our community to discuss what solidarity looks like at GW. Solidarity means unity to a cause. It means the acknowledgement that one cannot live another's experience. But in spite of this, they have the conviction and care to understand issues that affect them and to want to create change. This episode is about how GW, a school situated in a predominantly black city, but holds the title of a predominantly white institution, can be in solidarity with its black students every day in every way that we might need. Being a black student myself at GW, I understand that the issues we face are a stark contrast to what our non-black peers do. And in this time, with the deaths of so many black Americans at the hands of structural and systemic racism. Our campus is not exempt from a conversation that our country is now truly facing, head on. The experiences you are about to hear are not definitive and they in no way can represent the diversity of experiences and voices of black students at GW, but they are a start. My hope, however, is that it keeps the conversation going because it is not enough to condemn racism. You have to be actively opposed to it, making sure that our campus is equitable for all. I wanna start by acknowledging that the work and efforts of black students on this campus is enormous and that we work hard in and outside of the classroom to make sure that we are heard. And with that in mind, I want to honor just a few of the accomplishments of our Black students and faculty in a shout out in the form of a timeline of Black excellence, starting from August of 2019 to July 2020. This is a timeline of Black excellence. The GW National Panhellenic Council announced that they had two community townhouses which houses members of the GW Black Greek community. October 2019, The Black Senators Caucus is created to promote and push Black issues to the forefront of the Student Association. November 2019, GW's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Community Engagement hosted their annual Diversity Week with a keynote address on identity from Afro-Latina actress MJ Rodriguez from the hit series Pose. Over the course of the week, the summit hosted a series of discussions on Black women's identity, intersectionality, and how to address decolonizing a college experience as a Black undergraduate and graduate student. February 2020, GW's annual Black Heritage Celebration Reclaiming Our Renaissance 
honored the contributions of black students and celebrated over the course of a month with events like the fan favorite Soul Review, a discussion on black journalism with Angela Yee, community service events, events on identity and beauty, and not to be missed finale, where black students are encouraged to show up and show out in their best attire to celebrate the end of the celebration. All of which is planned by black students with the help of some administrators for black students. April 2020, in historic election, GW elects black executive cabinet members, Howard Brookins III as the president and Brandon Hill as the executive vice president. June 2020, the Black Student Union writes a letter signed in conjunction with many black organizations on campus to the GW Police Department asking for reform, specifically in the way that black events are policed, issues are responded to on campus, and for instance, involving an officer showing racial biases to it be addressed properly. They also raised $10,000 for the bailout funds of those protesting for the Black Lives Matter movement across our country. The Black Men's Initiative addressed a letter to the GW community on how to implement anti-racist policies around our campus. July 2020, the School of Media and Public Affairs names Dr. Amani Cheers as the new Associate Director of the school, making Dr. Cheers the first ever African-American woman to hold that position. The Black Law Student Association launches a petition for the law school to offer more courses related to race and law. And the excellence does not stop there. But to be honest, an exhaustive list of all the accomplishments of our black students on GW's campus would probably take more time than allotted in this episode. Today, you are going to hear from GW students, as well as one of our most effective and passionate administrators, Dr. Jordan West. Dr. West is always at the forefront of the most difficult conversations on our campus concerning race and discrimination, and this podcast will be no exception. So sit back, relax, grab your drink of choice, and get ready to get unfiltered. Hello, Dr. West. Thank you for joining me today on GW Unfiltered. Um, So you are the University Director of Diversity and Inclusion. What does that title mean in the broader spectrum of how our university works and especially in a moment like like today? Thank you for the opportunity to join and, and be part of this podcast. I am excited to share perspective and Um, serve as a resource to those who are listening, whether they're current students or incoming students. When I think about my title, um, it's funny because I don't know that I think about the specific words of my title as much as what I think about um, the potential impact of my role. So my position came out of student activism. I think it's incredibly important to start by naming that about two years ago, my position didn't exist. I just started um, August 13th, I believe it was, uh, two years ago. So it's almost two years now. And I think it's incredibly important to acknowledge that there were incidents on our campus that are very public that were rooted in what most people felt was racist behavior. And it sparked an 
um, ongoing conversation, I think, between students, staff, administration, faculty, and just the GW community at large to ask the question of who do we want to be and how do we want to get there? And so while I think it's oftentimes hard to understand that an incident led to the creation of a position, I think it's incredibly important to understand that this incident was an opportunity for GW to grow and to continue determining who we want to be, and even more importantly, what our campus deserves. So when I think of my role, I think of creating space, opportunity, voice for people who come from historically marginalized backgrounds, um, for people who are open to learning and willing to challenge themselves to grow, and for us to really serve as not only advocates, um, but also be able to provide the necessary education so that we, we collectively feel responsible for creating positive change on our campus. We all feel we have a role in the experiences our students have and that we're not solely in a position where we're just hoping and waiting on a decision to be made above us or below us or next to us. Uh, Toni Morrison has a brilliant quote that I think is relevant to this time and moment where she said to all of us, what can you do where you are? And I think it's an incredibly you know, important and empowering quote because it says that we all actually have a role and have the potential to do something. And so I think about this role as really being able to analyze what's been going on, determine what we can do better, create new possibilities, imagine a GW where our students show up each day and they're like, I feel that this was made for me. We oftentimes live in higher education beyond GW included with this mentality of sharing to students, faculty, staff, you're welcome to come here, you're welcome here. And I really want us to be an institution that strives to think about creating a space that says it was designed for you to be great. And so I think about my work is, is creating pathways, pushing down barriers. Um, when I think of justice-based work, it's about eliminating barriers that have prohibited people from gaining access. We strive for equity and I strive for justice. Like let's get rid of the barrier as opposed to figuring out how to work within it every single day. So I think the role is rather dynamic. Um, it really looks at policies, practices, programs, but ultimately the hope for possibility and change for members of our community, especially students, to feel like they can be as whole and as messy and as authentic and as figuring it out <laughs> at the same time and look back on their time at GW and feel the challenges, see the growth from the challenges um, and genuinely feel a sense of home, even if not every day was great. I think that is an immense role to take on um, and having watched you and spoken with you many different times about these issues. I think that you show up for students in ways that I know makes makes me as a Black woman on GW's campus feel seen and heard. So thank you for that. I don't know if anyone thanked you today, but I want to say thank you for that. And obviously in our current times that feel like they could have happened 60 years ago or 100 years ago, we are being we're you're right we're 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 trying to figure out how do we exist in a space that doesn't feel like it's necessarily ours and GW's campus is no exemption to that so obviously you work um within the office of diversity equity and community engagement 
and with the Black Lives Matter movement, not really having a resurgence necessarily, but really picking up speed this summer in particular, what have the last few weeks looked like as far as supporting students, supporting Black students and speaking up for them when they feel like, you know, hey, we need to talk about this. I think our team felt incredibly responsible for coming out with a statement. We don't oftentimes write large university statements. We normally support, uh, you know, the president or the provost, provost or whoever's coming out with a statement. And I think we did that in this case. And we acknowledged that the the role of our office um, had an important timely, urgent need to respond because it's not normal to watch multiple people die on TV who not only look like members of our community, but also just impact members of our community. And so there is a significance about this moment when when you reference that, you know, there might've been a resurgence or, you know, we're seeing this moment differently than previous. Um, I think we're seeing it different for, for a lot of reasons. I think the consciousness of our country is awakening. I think that we have a generation of students in higher education and in K through 12 right now who are connecting socially in a variety of ways and are being explicit about who they are. They understand their identities differently than maybe even people who are my age who came to college or when I was in K through 12. We're seeing so many social media platforms right now where people are explicitly naming racism or homophobia or sexism or whatever ism. So when I think about our office in the moment of George Floyd, in the moment of Breonna Taylor, in the moment of Rashard Brooks, I mean, we can list names. And the fact that I can list names that spanned only a, a few weeks of one another um, you know, knowing that Ahmad was a few months before, but didn't get attention until closer to, um, that's not normal. And I think we need to understand that there are not many other examples current day where we're watching communities get killed in the way that we just recently saw. And I think what I take really uh, seriously is the, the long-term impact of watching violence being exposed to violence, and simply knowing it happened. I have several friends and colleagues who said, I didn't watch the video of George Floyd because I heard enough to know that I couldn't bear that. I would not know how to recover from that. And I think about how many people then watched it and studied it and understood what happened in those eight minutes and what, 46 seconds or so. And how many people said, like, I can't take my eyes off of the news. And so I'm really cognizant that for us in our office, it was a moment of tremendous responsibility, um, impact, we were impacted too. And I think the ways in which our students were hurting was very clear. And for us, GWN Solidarity was one response. We wrote a letter that named blackness, that named race, that named hurt, harm, and violence. That was intentional. We also understood that we could do one or two programs or we could do a robust series. And so I said, robust series, let's do four weeks of programming that we just own and that we bring members of the community into. We rarely have affinity spaces on campus for faculty, staff, grad students, and undergraduate students to be in community across position, but within a similar identity. So I know from colleagues and friends and students who attended the Black men's groups 
They never knew that other Black men existed on our campus in various positions. I think we can say the same for several other groups. What I also know is that we had over 5,000 people register. We had sessions where there were over 300 people in attendance. And what I always, you know, use as a gauge is did you, did people log off halfway through? And I'm watching the numbers and the numbers stayed close to the 300 or the 200 or whatever it was at the beginning, all the way through the end. People continued to have questions and we just created a resource document that went out to all registrants last weekend and is now on our website. And within minutes of us sending the email, I could see through the Google doc we gave folks access to, we had 61 people logged in within about five minutes of the email being sent. I don't know that everybody was reading every detail, but it just tells you the readiness and the need for our campus. One thing I think it's important to stress is the fact that people who are not black, they could be not black and folks of color, they could be not black and white, were deeply engaged in the conversation too. And I think right now I've received so much outreach from faculty and staff who are saying, I, I need to show up differently this fall. I got an email last week from a faculty member who said, I realize that I have growth and, and an area of opportunity and I've, I've not been doing all that I can. And now, and, and it, unfortunately it took some of this recent, you know, um, happenings and violence and also GW in solidarity for me to say, I actually have the ability to do something and now I'm really clear on what I need to do. So to the question around what has this felt like, it's felt overwhelming. It's felt like a lot. We're human too. Um, we have families too. My supervisor has two black boys and a black daughter at home and a black husband at home. And so I think about the ways in which she navigates all these spaces, um, knowing that she has a family that, that feels very close to what's been going on in the news, just like I do and others. So I think this is just a very real moment and we need everybody to feel like they are part of this in order for us to really think that racial justice, anti-racism is possible. This is the first time that I've recognized that they are acknowledging that they don't have to. And that's solidarity. That's that's seeing the fact that like I don't get how it feels to be a black woman at GW, but I can tell you that Hannah, I recognize that you're not okay today. And let me be a, a, an ear, let me be someone to lean on, even though you know COVID had separated us. I felt so connected with my friends and it's, it's terrible that it took this, but we're having those difficult conversations that I would only ever have with my black friends or my friends who are also people of color. It's changing. So I do wanna ask specifically, how does the office support black students? Do you have any, any examples? Especially, I mean, we have BHC, we have so many different things. I feel like it's, it's a year round effort, but if you could name drop some things, that would be great. I think about the ways in which we bring certain speakers to campus. So we have the Race in America lecture series. We have the diversity summit. We have a variety of institution-wide efforts where we think about the voices we're elevating and we're centering whether that's through panelists, whether that's through presenters or speakers, as I mentioned, we are oftentimes saying whose voice has not been brought to the center and the complexity of identity. So I think, as you mentioned, there's a, a variety of ways in which Black people identify and feel their Blackness and experience, experience race. And what we're really cognizant of is giving people enough support so that they can not only feel fully themselves when they're at GW, but that we're also bringing in voices from outside of GW who 
in some sense, provide that additional support. So um, while you said Black, I understand too that we have a huge Latinx community on our campus who identifies as Afro-Latino or Afro-Latina or Afro-Latinx. And I, I never want to eliminate people's Blackness from the conversation and the ways in which multiple identities show up and are still Black too. And so I think about MJ Rodriguez, who is from Pose, um, and she, she came to GW to be our keynote speaker for the Diversity Summit this year and proudly identifies as an Afro-Latina transgender woman. And not only does she carry multiple identities that have been historically marginalized, but she gave voice to a population on our campus that oftentimes feels unseen. So I think about the intention behind picking and choosing speakers. We have Nicole Hannah-Jones behind the 1619 Project speaking in September of this fall. She'll be with us on September 15th virtually to talk about the creation of this project and her role in creating what was, um, you know, never done before in terms of bringing forward the history of not only the ways in which Black people existed in this country, but Black people were brought to this country. So I feel like thinking of, of her as a speaker is also tremendously important when it comes to um, our students. You know, this is a bit more personal, but I felt, I felt responsible for teaching last fall and creating a course on Black feminist theory. And of course, you know, many know because I brought Beyonce into it, uh, but a course on Black feminist theory did not exist at least last fall if I didn't teach it. And I felt like there were a group of Black faculty and Black women who came together to say, I now need to teach the, the next spring. I now need to teach in the future. How do we bring parts of Black feminist theory into our courses? So I think about the ways in which while that was my faculty identity, it, it's not ever separate in my mind from my role with an ODECE. You know, I also think about the ways in which we acknowledge the intersections of identity for our students and um, create programming like we did an open house, uh, knowing that we have students who have experienced food insecurity on campus, and we have a lot of students who experience food insecurity at the intersections of being a person of color and or being trans or a person with a disability. And so in the winter, uh, around the end of the fall semester, we did an open house lunch and an open house dinner, asked no questions, said, come on in, get your food. And while that's not necessarily specific to race and Black students, we also know that from Black students that they've been impacted around food insecurity on our campus. Um, we also, uh, Dr. Cheers and I, Amani Cheers and I, we went in front of our alumni board about a year ago to propose in kind of a Shark Tank way. And we did a pitch for a program called Sisters in the Academy. So Sisters in the Academy is a specific program that we received funding for through our alumni donations in order to create space specifically for Black women. Um, and while our semester and year was cut a little bit short in person, we continue to feel and get outreach from people saying, I want and I need to be part of that space. So I think the outreach and the ways we are actively thinking about Black students, um, Black community in general is, is very salient. And I think that what remains even more salient for us is just acknowledging the ways in which marginalized folks in general experience our campus. And so we've seen an uptick of incidents around anti-Semitism. So what is our responsibility for creating similar spaces for communities that have also been hurt and harmed either on our campus or nationally or internationally? Right now we have international students who are not sure what this looks like when they move forward. So I'm receiving emails from our international students who might also be Black 
who might also be queer, who might also be a person with disability and or whatever else, who are also needing us to be an advocate. Um, so I think it's really important to see yourself in our staff. I think a lot of students see themselves in our staff and in our house, literally our townhouse, and that we are committed to understanding the complexity of each individual student's stories and creating space for them. So when students say they need something, I'm like, how can we make it happen? When students say they are seeking support, I, I figure out where we can offer that for them. And I, I don't think that that comes solely with a certain race or a certain gender, but rather students knowing that our office is a champion for who they are. And it's so important for students to feel like they have a champion for them, especially, you know, if you're a first time first year student in a big city like D.C., coming to school like GW, it's it's an experience that nobody has ever had. And you need to know that someone is willing to hear you critically without just judging you. So students do come in with bias in Title IX training, um, and that might be the last time that they have to think critically about issues of discrimination. Is that a problem you feel like the office can address fully? And what could other offices do that would support those efforts of diversity and inclusion on our campus? So I appreciate the question because we've actually thought extensively about our responsibility to continue to have educational opportunities for our students beyond the orientation time when they might be doing the modules you referenced. So we actually have a robust plan forward for this academic year. It would be different, of course, in person, but we're still ready to go virtually with providing educational opportunities. Some sense um, of GW in solidarity, like it would remind you of the spirit of GW in solidarity in terms of creating virtual platforms, panels, education, lectures. Um, we're looking at Race in America, you know, to be virtual. We're also looking at the Diversity Summit this year to be virtual and to take on some of the current moment. We're also in an election year, um, you know, so we feel like we need to be providing a lot of space, not only for learning, but for accountability. I think about our partners in uh, student affairs. So Christy Anthony's team in student rights and responsibilities is actively engaging in conversations around conflict management, cultural competency. They're looking at the policies and protocols in the student code of conduct to understand if bias could could be at play ever, who is impacted when we have a certain policy enacted. Uh, so I think about folks who are willing to, to review their own stuff and say, how does this impact students? I also think about several academic colleges have been in partnership with me over the last few months to review and revise their first year seminar course and to be more inclusive around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's not just like a checkbox. We wrote something on the board one day. It's like, what are you reading? What are, what's being talked about? What's being discussed? How are we engaging in meaningful conversations? So I think to your question around like what do we do when maybe the modules are at the beginning and there's not a requirement later is we start to think about where we do have requirements and how we then utilize those spaces like a first year seminar to build out a far more complex, intersectional, thoughtful, consciousness raising uh, curriculum. You know, I also have to just believe that the little things we do actually begin to chip away at some of the problematic maybe less cognizant um, or less conscious, you know, things that are happening on campus. I, I can't tell you the amount of faculty after the GW and Solidarity Workshop for Faculty on Unconscious Bias reached out to me and were like, whoa, I got some stuff and I'm glad I attended this space and was willing to see my stuff. 
Um, we had about 160 faculty logged into that workshop. And so you just have to believe that those maybe like 20 or so emails I got quickly after that reference the moment of learning, what they're going to change, what they're going to do differently will have an impact. So I believe that we all have a role and we have to be able to look at what we do already, determine who has access to our resources and what are the ways we can be more accessible and more inclusive. And what's most important to me is that we understand that this is not like a one and done. I always tell folks, you sign up, you sign in, like you're in it. And so to me, I'm looking for people who are committed. I'm looking for people who are in the long game with me and are willing to be uncomfortable, to say, I didn't do this one right, who are able to apologize, who understand the impact of an apology. But I think that we have a lot of great campus partners right now who either in this moment or leading up to this moment have been doing work to say, we, we have a responsibility to do better and our students deserve a lot. And we need to create a campus community that is committed to being anti-racist, that is committed to being against any form of hate and bigotry that's impacting members of our community. And that we're willing to stick with folks as they're learning and getting through some of the unlearning that they need to do in order to be better humans. So George Washington University, is known as a PWI, and they are called such because essentially they are built on principles of whiteness and institutionalized racism. And this is um, a more nuanced question, but I feel as though it's important to ask, especially now, is it worth trying to rebuild a system that was not meant for non-white people? You talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, why why do we continue to engage with with structure that doesn't work or work around a structure that doesn't work when we could just rebuild a new one so do you think it's worth trying to rebuild some of the things that don't benefit students of color at GW or marginalized groups at GW I think it becomes really important to just identify um, a collective and or shared understanding of what those things are. I think you mentioned before just the ways in which even some of your white friends and peers are are awakening in this moment. Um, they're acknowledging their privilege. They're acknowledging that they never had to acknowledge privilege. So just as you're pulling that forward in your personal life, I also think that as an institution and for higher education in general, all predominantly white institutions right now are really clear on their history. And I think as we enter the 100 or the bicentennial for, for us as GW, that we are going to start pulling forward a bit more of that history. I've actually had two calls today about the bicentennial and folks who are committed to telling the truth. And that sometimes the truth is also laced with moments of harm and hurt and things we're not proud of. So I think to your question, you know, does it make sense to create spaces that are new? I mean, that's decolonization. So when we decolonize, we think of reducing structures of hierarchy and power. We think of moving forward with like co, uh, you know, co-working mentalities, co-creation. Um, I think a lot about the process of unlearning is one of decolonization. I mean, part of colonization is creating um, a way of thinking for people so that you never know how to think otherwise. And so for us, we think 
what we experience and what we know and what we do is just what it is. And so to potentially say, well, what else would this look like? How else could we structure? I think about even in my classroom. So I think of, of myself as a contributor to the classroom, but not the leader of the classroom. Yes, at the end of the day, I understand I assign a grade and I want people to feel collectively part of how we make sense of not only the content, but the experiences students are having. And so when I think about the ownership that I want students to have, when I think about my syllabus, my syllabus talks about my philosophy and my commitment to working towards being inclusive every single day I show up in that classroom. So I guess for me, I don't know that we need to create something that doesn't, that doesn't exist already. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm also open to what that would look like. Um, I'm also cognizant that we have, you know, minority serving institutions. We have HBCUs, we have Hispanic serving institutions. We have institutions that are not PWIs and are also experiencing similar systemic issues. And so what I think becomes really important is understanding that we don't need a majority of white folks to be upholding white supremacy or whiteness or any sort of colonizer mentality. That is something that we all take on, perpetuate, and are complicit in on a daily basis. And so I think that it's a bit more complex to say, well, how do we start centering particular voices? How do we start thinking about enrollment and faculty hiring and retention of certain folks? I always say the worst thing we can do is sell somebody on any institution of higher education. And when they arrive at our door, they find out that what we sold them was not true. And so I think it's incredibly important to say, let's start with how we have a structure in place to retain support, cheerlead, champion students, faculty, staff who come from historically marginalized identities, and then let's invite them in. Then let's bring them to our team. Because to me, we oftentimes try to get the numbers up, but then when people get here, we don't have the infrastructure to support them. So I think that there's a little bit of, we can do a lot of things, meaning that we could create something new. We could also create strong affinity within the space we're in. I get asked all the time, do you think about the fact that you work at a predominantly white institution and you do this type of work? Do you feel complicit in a system? And I oftentimes say, well, who's going to change it if I'm not here? And so I think that there's people who have roles within the context of change. And I, I strongly support the grassroots organizers who are probably marching to Capitol Hill to say something right now or the folks who are working on Capitol Hill, or the, the corporate partners who said, I'm giving off for Juneteenth because I need my Black employees to get some rest. The Twitters and everybody else who did that. So I'm, I'm really thoughtful about that. And interestingly, in the moment of COVID, I'm also thinking about who's saying, I know my community can be differently impacted right now if I require people to come back. So we see businesses like Capital One who said, I'll see you all in 2021 because I need you to stay safe. I need you to also be okay. I mean, and there's probably a whole lot of decisions behind that. So when I think about our institution and higher ed and PWIs, I think about us starting with the question of who do we wanna be and how do we wanna get there? And let's not go from the blueprint. Let's just create something on a, on a scrap piece of paper. And if it overlaps, great. If it's different, let's go. And that it's okay to, to start going and not always see the final end. Because what we don't know is a, is a universe without racism. 
We don't know a universe without all of these isms we've talked about. And so if we're looking for the light at the end of the tunnel, we have to know that we're not going to know what it looks like because we've never seen it before. And so I want us to just be really thoughtful about the fact that when we create something new, when we take a bold action to change, that we don't always know the pathway we're on, but we have to deeply believe that if we're doing the right thing, it's going to lead us into the right place. It's about conviction to to change and to becoming a better a better world, which is such a big idea. <laughs> and we cannot fix that in the time allotted in this podcast. But if you are thinking about it right now, then I think we've done our job. So obviously a lot of our listeners are going to be prospective students, students who are incoming. And a lot of what we've been seeing is, like you said, making sure that our history is being talked about, that people are being held accountable for their actions. What advice would you give to students who want to hold those in power, those who have wielded power and had it for centuries, longer than their, maybe their community has had? How do they hold those in power accountable for it? So in Black feminist theory, we talk oftentimes about truth telling and truth telling is really core to the work we do. And so I, I empower anybody, regardless of how you identify, what you look like, what you believe, to really believe in truth telling. What does it mean to tell the truth and to be honest? I also want to say your story is incredibly powerful. And I think we, we oftentimes minimize the value of our perspective and our voice. As students, you have probably the most power on a college campus. So use your voice when you have something to say or when you feel something. Also believe that there are some like-minded people on our campus. So I think when you enter an institution that you're less familiar with, you might find some groups that you're clicking with. You might not find the perfect match though right away, but believe that there are people here who are just as committed and convicted, to use your word, uh, behind the things that you're passionate about. I also believe that there are multiple ways to um, tell the truth and to hold folks accountable. We're really accustomed to going to social media or calling people out in a way that is actually probably unproductive. I oftentimes tell faculty in particular who teach in the classroom, there's a thin line between provocation and productivity. So we can be provocative a lot, but to be productive, I think is really challenging. And so I want people to understand when you're calling folks out on social media or when you're going to social media to resolve conflict, it may not always end in the best result. And it could be harmful to you and that person. I guess the other piece I say is that, um, you know, the it's the Margaret Mead quote of like, don't ever underestimate the power of a small group of people. Uh, that if you, your friends, people in your class feel something is wrong, that there are, there are avenues to tell us, um, whether that's coming directly to me and then I help you get to the right place if it's not me or it's going to, you know, our Dean of Students or Christy Anthony or my supervisor, Carolyn LeGare-Brown, that there's people who want your experience to be positive. And there's people who want to provide you with support when you're trying to be an activist or use your voice on campus. And so utilize the resources that are, that are in place. Um, I mean, I think there's the always the good old see something, say something, and understanding that that goes that goes a long way. Um, right now, I think we oftentimes need people to support us when we've experienced something and, and recognize that it happened to us. Um, the last thing I'll say is that uh, you have, you know, the ability to um, hold folks in power accountable in a variety of ways, and it doesn't always have to be writing a letter or stomping down an office door. It could be that you tell 
that person or those people, how you've been impacted. And I always tell people to lead with impact and questions. So we oftentimes want to accuse. And I think that it's, it's a lot more powerful, goes a lot further when you're able to say, this is how that hurt me or harmed me. And I want, I want clarity. Like, why did you make that decision? Or tell me more before I just, you know, come at you for doing something that I feel was terrible. I do believe that sometimes we, we don't always hear or know the, the grand impact of something until a student is willing to tell us. And so I, I just really empower you to um, to feel what you feel and to tell us what you feel. And when you're hurt, it's okay to be hurt. That's a real experience. Don't feel the need to apologize for your hurt if you've been harmed or affected. And to make sure that if you really want change, that you figure out who you trust enough on campus to support you through utilizing your voice and holding folks accountable. So obviously, one of the newer ways that we can hold people accountable on campus is the bias incident reporting system. Can you break it down for those of us listening who aren't quite sure what that means and, and how it works? It was relatively new on campus, but I think it's, it's, done, a, it's done a lot of good. Yeah, it came out, I think, spring of 2019, so just about a, just over a year ago, um, and it was something that we developed because we acknowledged through student voice and the different things that students were sharing with us at town halls or whatever it would be, people continued to say, well, if it's not a policy violation, but it's wrong, where do I tell somebody? And we didn't have a structure in place prior to that semester where students could talk about things like microaggressions, those subtle comments that just don't feel right or don't sit well with you. People were saying, I don't know where to go because maybe it wasn't a policy violation, but it still wasn't okay. And so what do I do? And, and the bias instant reporting system can be found at our website, diversity.gwu.edu. And there's a button at the top that says report a bias incident here. When you click it, don't worry, it doesn't automatically report something. It doesn't give away your identity. Um, you have the choice. One, you can read through the content we have up there. And when you decide, or if you decide to fill out a form, you don't need to identify yourself or you can. You can choose how you identify on that form. You can also indicate the alleged parties, so the people that you believe did the behavior. You can indicate where it happened. You can also indicate if there were witnesses who, who witnessed whatever behavior you're describing. And then there's an open text box for you to provide as much information and a way to attach images. So folks may attach a screenshot of something or a picture that they saw. And then at the bottom, there's the opportunity to check yes or no if you want university follow-up. So if students or faculty or whoever reports something checks yes, we will reach out to that person. And we really empower the individual reporting to share with us how they want to see the situation um, get resolved and really work towards restoration. Sometimes, too, we bring in our campus partners who are adjudicating offices like student rights and responsibilities, where you might find that an incident that came through our bias incident reporting system is actually a potential policy violation. And we then can share with the individual reporting, this could be a potential policy violation. Would you like to utilize these other channels as well to formally go through a policy violation or, or, or an investigation if so? And so we're really mindful of bringing in the individuals who need to be be part of a conversation and the goal is to provide support and get to a restoration. So if something harmful happens, we want that to be owned. We want folks to be um, felt responsible for addressing the harm 
and for growing and, and to be better. And what we find is that we get reports regularly, um, sometimes daily, for sure weekly, uh, we get reports. And sometimes it's more of an FYI, I don't really want anything to come out of this, but I wanted to let you know. And sometimes it's it's more egregious and something explicit happened and we have to respond you know, pretty extensively to whatever that is. And what I will say is that the goal is to always make sure that we're caring for everybody involved and we're providing resources and that we lead with a perspective of hope, like the hope that people can be um, told about the impact of something and really commit and work towards changing the behavior. So I empower anybody who ever has something that happens to them or even is just not, it feels unsettled maybe with something that happened in a class, whether they were directly affected or not, or in a residence hall that you reach out to us. And even if you're saying, I'm not sure what else to do with this information, but I just want you to have it, we'll take it because we don't believe that we can act on change and create change to, to things when we don't really know all the problems. So please know that our team um, reads them within typically minutes of receiving them. We respond within 48 hours, normally within 24, but we respond within 48 hours for sure. And we follow up with anybody who's been named as involved in one way, shape or form. So um, know that I'm the person on the other end of them too. So if that's helpful, I, I want you to, to feel like you have a trusted resource on our campus. So we keep hearing about how uncomfortable all of these discussions are, but you have made it your life's work to fight against hate and discrimination. You call yourself a scholar and an activist. And I think those two things completely define what I've, I've seen of your work on campus. So what is something that you carry with you as a reminder to keep fighting back oppressive systems? So a few things, I think, um, you know, I grew up in a house where we were allowed to talk about things that folks may now call uncomfortable. I remember being at a kitchen table with my dad, a black man from Bridgeport, Connecticut, who said, I grew up with the belief from my father, meaning my grandfather, that when the sun rises, you rise and you have things to do each day. And my dad always said, I, I will wear a suit to work forever because I know that that's what people need to see in order to take me seriously as a, as a tall big black man. And so what I'm cognizant of is that I grew up in a space where not only did we have some of those life lessons, if you will, but we also were able to push back on that. We were also able to challenge one another to say, well, what happens if, and what happens when, and what it, does it mean when um, certain things happen to us? Why do they happen to us? Why does my dad get pulled over? And why does he get pulled over every time we're in one particular area? How does this happen? And how is this not a coincidence anymore? And so I acknowledge the privilege that comes with being able to be in a home where you're openly encouraged to talk about identity, even if it's in the, in the form of disagreement, that we, we are going to philosophically disagree with on, on this with each other, and we'll then eat ice cream and, and cuddle, right? Like that I grew up in a house where that was allowed. And I grew up in a neighborhood where diversity at its truest form was present. Like where we talked to neighbors about their religion, where we talked to people about disability and gender and sexuality and where my, my parents' friends are in a variety of relationships and family dynamics that we were exposed to early on. I say that to say that when I was in undergrad, um, I was the key eyewitness in a court case that lasted three years that was based on racial profiling and police brutality. 
And I was uh, at a gathering with a group of friends that we actually met our first year during orientation. And we were having a reunion November of our sophomore year, November 13th. And when we got to, you know, our friend's on-campus apartment, it quickly led to police coming to the door, police knocking on the door, and our two friends being told that they were getting arrested because they couldn't produce their license. On any college campus, you need your college ID, and they were able to produce that. And so I share this story with you because not only were we all handcuffed, pepper sprayed, um, SWAT team actually ended up arriving, blocked the road. It was it was violent, it was egregious, and it was just simply unnecessary. And when I think about it, I remember the frustration I had, the anger I had. It was an emotion I had never felt to that extent before. And I'm sitting there at like 18, 19 years old, like ready to do something. I just don't know what that is. And so many of you might be feeling that even about this moment. I don't know what to do, but I feel it all. And I remember waking up and calling my family, who, again, I was able to have these conversations with. And I said, I'm going to the president's house. And they said, okay, okay. And being able to have a supportive family that said, do what you feel is right, because that's what we've taught you, to do what you feel is right. And I acknowledge that out of the 20 or so of us who were in that room at that moment, witnessing the same thing, I made the decision to stick with my friends. And I have no critique of those who weren't ready or able to do the same, but I fought and I pushed. And you saw us protesting on campus. You saw us being you know, interviewed by the news. I was meeting with the police department to get the officer. Officer Bogash was his name. I actually have a journal article that was published based on this incident um, called Dear Officer Bogash, because for me, it was the moment I found my voice. And so when I think about what allows me to keep pushing every day is almost this sense of hope because what actually happened after three years of going to court in college for three years straight was that all counts were dropped against both of them. And I, I don't say that because we deserve kudos for being persistent. I say that because in, in many cases, they wouldn't have been dropped. They would have figured out ways to have them stick they would have found something else that would have caused the case to go different ways. But I was willing to stay by the side of people who I know did nothing wrong. And when we believe deeply in something and we follow our passion, we follow the truth, then it, it leads us to a better place. And so I'm a hope dealer, I say. I wake up each morning and when I hit snooze or when I turn the alarm off, like I know I'm getting up to fight some sort of system that was created that none of us really created ourselves, but we've all been living as part of it. And I have a responsibility to create a space in higher education or through higher education that feels liberating for students who look like me, have similar experiences to me, or come from historically marginalized backgrounds. I hear way too often from students of color, particularly our black and brown students, that I'm surviving, I'm making it through, I'm figuring it out, I'm gonna keep pushing, you know, this is what we do, we've been built for this. And while that is all true, you deserve more and you don't deserve to be exhausted fighting a system. I want you to get an education, I want you to go change the world, I need you to be the lawyer, I need you to be the doctor, and I don't want our institution to impede on your progress or your health. And too many of our students have sacrificed their health or their grades 
to fight against a system. And I want to be able to do that for you so that you can go on and do the next thing. And so I think about my role and my motivation, um, whether it's my niece, you know, my two baby nieces who are truly babies and will grow up to be in college one day, or the students I look at like you, Hannah, or others who I'm like, I have to, I have to believe we can create a better space that is liberating and it is freeing and it is rooted in joy um, and possibilities and, and simply acknowledges our existence as valid and enough. So um, there's a lot of motivation and it's very personal for me. The hope I think that you can instill and that so many other people on our campus can instill and a student who's looking to come, a student who's already here. It's it's the thing that switches from like, should I should I remain? Should I, am I thinking about it to I can do this? And the I can do this mentality is something that will drive you and push you in life to places that you didn't think you could go before. So Dr. West, I want to thank you for coming here today and speaking to us on this podcast. And thank you for your work. Dr. West is a powerful voice on our campus in a time when we are all seeking clarity. As Dr. West pointed out earlier, students on a college campus hold the most power when it comes to making meaningful and lasting change. Two individuals working towards that are Howard Brookins III and Brandon Hill, who are the all-Black executive team for GW Student Association this year. I mentioned this before in the timeline of Black Excellence, and although they cannot be confirmed as the first ever all-Black exec team, Brandon told me that they are the first in our recent memory. So pretty amazing no matter what. My conversation with them about all things student life is up next. Well, I want to thank you for being here today um, to talk to me about how the Student Association can be in solidarity with Black students. Obviously, you and Howard are, in recent memory, the only two Black vice president and president of the SA. And I just want to know, what was it like when you two kind of realized, like, wow, we're taking on these roles as Black men at this PWI at GW specifically, what was going through your head that day? There was no other way to describe it than historic. Um, I think there was so much going in our head about um, what more what we're able to do now that we're, we've been on the same page before and now that we're actually able to put our minds to it. Um, but it also feels um, like a lot of pressure, I'm not going to lie. Um, I think that the the Black community at GW voted, um, and we really don't want to let them down. Um, so we're trying as much as we can to incorporate them. Um, lots of bringing people into rooms with us and making sure they have a seat at the table um, through our application processes, through all our meetings with administrators. Um, but if I were to describe it in one word, it would be historic. 
So I'm kind of wondering, what are you looking forward to as um, vice president and um, someone who created helped create the Black Senators Caucus? What are some initiatives that you're excited for that are specific to Black students um, in the coming year? I think a lot of um, what Howard and I are looking for um, is creating an equitable um, and community-based experience. Um, I think for so long, the Black community has been left behind um, and has caused so many gaps between other communities on campus and really bringing us to the forefront um, when it comes to things like who has office spaces in the Marvin Center, who has accessible, who has um, the student association funds more accessible and who, which communities have these knowledge gaps around what services are provided, specifically healthcare. And so when it comes down to it, I think really being able to let people know that we're there for them um, so that we're able to say, oh, you're a black org who has never had an office before um, and now you're trying to get serious, here's an office. Or um, when I'm a big proponent um, and supporter of the Mount Vernon campus, um, and lots of people have been wanting to get more diversity on the Mount Vernon campus. Um, and I think that the Mount Vernon campus isn't something that's built for diversity. Um, so making sure that we're looking at the infrastructure and saying, okay, our uh, minorities and marginalized communities need better um, mental health services all across the board um, and saying, how can we get that for them? Uh, what's working now and what's not working? Um, and so those are a few of the big things. Um, right now, a few um, petitions are going around, um, around renaming a few university buildings. I think that these renaming efforts are really um, amazing and a, a lot of them are looking to be turnout successful, but also um, bring up the idea of what does reclaiming a space mean? And how do we take a space that's not built for us and make it built for us um, before, um, I, right now we're discussing ideas of putting a plaque up in the Marvin Center um, to talk about who Cloyd Heck Marvin was as a person or really promoting um, all these educational experiences about um, who um, we all know that James Monroe and James Madison were presidents. Um, but And we think that presidents are this kind of like protected class when it comes to building names. But yes, they are presidents, but where they were out also segregationists. They're also proponents of slavery. Um, and there's nowhere really to find that unless you're absolutely looking for it. So taking so many opportunities um, with the platform we have to educate, um, reclaim these spaces and make the university just accessible um, to black students across the board. Besides just you two working very diligently and, and intentionally, especially for with I mean, with Black students in mind and Blackness in mind to make sure that we feel safe and we feel heard. What do you think that other SA um, senators can do to be in solidarity with Black students? And what can the SA at large do? I think a lot of senators do have action, lots of action-oriented things when it comes to um, finances. Um, I think right now there are lots of students looking to um, host talks about police brutality um, and um, other intersectional aspects of um, the Black experience, specifically at GW, and being able to focus our financial efforts on that and put our money where our mouth is 
to be uh, like many people say, both at a university perspective and at um, a student association perspective. I mean, I completely agree. Money and, and the funding and, and the opportunities that, you know, non-Black orgs get versus what Black orgs kind of have to pull together to be able to do. There are large disparities. But I have to say in these past couple of weeks, I've felt very hopeful because a lot of Black orgs have been putting out statements. Um, specifically, I'm thinking of the Black Student Union and the Black Men's Initiative um, putting out statements about anti-racism and specifically BSU putting out a statement on the ways that GWPD has affected Black students and, and our events. And I've been there. It has. It did feel strange that our events are so heavily policed. For what reason? I could never tell you, but it doesn't feel right. So I want to know, for students who are looking to come to this university, for students who are already here, basically, what can they expect from the essay if they want to, if they want to come to you with issues and need to find a way to get help? You know what I mean? Like if they want, if they want to get to, to point B, but they're stuck at A, what can the essay do for them? Well, first, um, let me respond um, to what you previously said. Um, when we um, release statements about um, everything that's happening in the world right now, um, and said that we, yes, as an all-Black um, executive team, we're here for Black students, but we also serve as resources for predominantly white student organizations. And the amount of emails we received of people saying, can you pre-read our statement or can you um, just sit down and, uh, with us and talk about how we can better represent our um, organization has been really uplifting. Um, and it really shows student, students really wanting to take um, that step forward um, and right the wrongs that have been previously made within the culture of organizations, both on campus and off campus. So I think students can get involved on campus in a variety of ways, um, not just with DSA, but on their own, taking that initiative. I think you've seen a lot of students start their own petition online, do a social media campaign, um, fundraise for a certain org, or even donate 5 or $10 to an, an org with a worthy cause. I think that what people are looking for is somebody to tell them to do something. I think that if you take that on yourself and put kind of that weight on your shoulders and take your own initiative to go out and really just do good. Uh, you see homelessness in your area. Uh, go to your nearest homeless shelter um, and provide food. I know right now COVID is happening. A lot of elderly uh, need food delivered to their house. It could be something like taking food to your grandmother um, or making sure that your family members are okay and safe um, during this time. It could look like protesting or really kind of explaining to your family members why the protests are happening and what is going on in the different uh, communities of color that you may not share um, that same experience. So really just kind of educating yourself, um, educating your family members, and um, just really trying to take an initiative to fill those gaps that you see on a daily basis. And so um, in terms of an internal um, inner working of the essay, there are ample opportunities for the first year students to get involved. Um, we have first year senator seats within the Senate um, broken up by academic affairs, student life and the finance committee. 
Um, and there's a rigorous application process for that. Um, although there are only three positions for that, there are also ample amount of committee aid um, positions. So if you're interested in assisting um, the committees and writing legislation and meeting um, those people, um, that's another opportunity. Um, we have a few caucuses in the formation period. Um, so if you're interested in assisting those, um, they will most likely also have um, AIDS and be interacting with um, the greater community. Um, we have a diversity and inclusion assembly, um, which is made up of student leaders of multicultural organizations. So if you become an e-board member of the Black Student Union or um, the Dis Disabled Students Collective or the Pakistani Student Association, any of these multicultural organizations, you can apply to be a member of the diversity and inclusion assembly. And to add on to that, we have Christy Pham, who's the director of the Student Engagement Committee. Um, and that's a great program to get first years involved uh, where they can kind of tag along with a senator or a VP or even uh, one of us and figure out if they like the essay, how can they get involved as a freshman. Um, and they really learn a lot about the process and the procedure that goes on in the essay. Um, and also, they get to help on a variety of different projects that are directly impacting students on campus every day. So now that I have Brandon and Howard together, um, I want to ask you both, um, as two Black men on this campus, students who have been outspoken in your leadership, do you feel that you have faced specific challenges when you are trying to work, especially for your community, um, that maybe would not be there were you not two Black men in leadership? Um, as two Black men who are tasked with representing all students, it becomes a little difficult with when we stick to our guns and go with what we feel is right, or when we are more cognizant of upsetting um, that minority opinion and things like that. Um, I think we this year we have some really strong allies in places like the Black Student Union and the Black Women's Forum. Um, and so being able to utilize their um, constituencies and their platforms um, in collaboration with ours to uplift them, rather than having us um, be the, the face of all these campaigns um, has been something that we definitely tried striking a balance with um, throughout the time. So, um, kind of flipping that question, what are some of the things that you have loved so far about advocating for your community? Obviously, Howard, you just mentioned um, that you guys donated, I mean, thousands of dollars to DC orgs, which again, DC is a predominantly black city. We should be making sure that even though Foggy Bottom looks the way that it does demographic wise, we should be supporting the larger DC community because we exist in it, whether you come from DC or not. So what are some things that you two um, find as as assets, as, as being two Black men who are trying to, especially now, work for the Black community? I think some of the things that we see now um, and some of the things that we did not see before when we were just senators uh, is some of the power that we can wield um, in used to support uh, the Black community at GW. Um, I think that us being remote 
um, gives us more of an opportunity to communicate back and forth between some of the black leaders. Uh, but what I think it does is kind of remove uh, the effect of us having on campus. Um, I think one of the things that we wanted to do this year is create a lot of these equitable spaces um, for students, um, specifically communities of color on campus that have been underrepresented and have not been spoken for. Um, I think the fact that the MSSC isn't large enough to adequately socially distance. Um, so a lot of people will not be able to use that building. And that is one building that a lot of people of color on campus call home. So I think it, it, it looks like moving the conversation uh, to important points to communities of color, such as improving these spaces for the MSSC, recognizing the black voices on campus, recognizing the different racism that occurs in, in classrooms, um, recognizing uh, the different discrimination that occurs in student organizations. Um, I think we can bring uh, attention to this issue and bring the activism to another level since we are in these positions. And I think that we're only seeing kind of the beginning of it kind of coming into the summer um, with the unfortunate incidents of, of, of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. Um, that has kind of forced us into action and forced us uh, to really step up in a time where the essay would usually be in a relaxed state over the summer. Um, so we've tried to use our positions and use the voice that we have in the time that we have now, um, because we don't know when things are going to turn back to normal. So why not start the activism now? Um, and I think that when we keep this momentum going um, into the school year, and kind of keep the same energy throughout, I think that you'll see um, more people kind of hop on this bandwagon uh, for change. I completely agree. I think 100% um, everything we do um, and all our inspirations and motivation comes from and is by the students. Um, but I think that the greatest thing that I've gotten out of being um, the, a Black executive vice president, a Black senator, and even a Black student at GW is an increased sense of self-awareness. Um, being able to have such a strong and tight-knit community that is able to face um, so much in terms of both organizing um, the Black Heritage Celebration, um, organizing protests against um, inequalities in campus, in the world, and in D.C., um, and being able to celebrate so many differences within the community has made me so much, has provided me with so much of the Black boy joy uh, and so much excitement um, around the Black GW experience and uh, made me so much more prouder of my own Blackness as a whole. I love that. Um, so I think we're kind of wrapping up here. Um, obviously there are going to be lots of people who are hearing this message and hearing from you two specifically. And I want to know, do you have any words of encouragement for any black students that are looking at GW that are coming to GW in the fall? And even those of us, just like us who are currently GW students who are kind of looking at the university and looking at student leadership and wondering, what are we going to do? Do you have any words of encouragement for them? There is a community here. Um, when I was uh, looking at colleges all across the country, 
Um, I found GW to be one of the best experiences I've had when I came to campus. I instantly wanted to come here, um, but I did recognize that it was a predominantly white institution. Um, I recognized that I would be put out of my comfort zone in certain positions and that I would be far away from home um, as I'm from Chicago. Um, and as I came here, I found the community, I found friends. And uh, when you talk to certain people and you have these deep connections at GW, um, you definitely won't regret it. Um, there is strong leadership here. There are students in your corner fighting for you. Uh, we want to fight for you. Um, we are in these positions because we have lived through certain uh, different instances uh, that have been unpleasant on campus, of course, but we power through and want to change that so that you don't have to experience that ever again. And I think we're moving uh, in a direction where we can see that progress happen. And I hope that through this coming school year and in the future, um, that the change will continue to happen and the system will uh, recognize us and treat us uh, fairly um, like we should be treated. It's a really hard one. Um, I think there is definitely a lot that I wish I knew um, going into my first year. Um, I think that I'll just say that community building takes time um, and it takes effort, um, but it's so rewarding at the end. Um, not just, not every person you think who's gonna like you is gonna like you. Um, not every person you share a common characteristic or trait with is going to like you. Um, but the fact that you're all able to have a common experience and look out for each other in that sense is really um, insurmountable and not seen before. Um, so I think you could honestly go up to any, a Black student could go up to any Black student at GW and say, hey, I need help with this, or hey, I'm looking for a community in this manner. And without a doubt, someone will help you out. I completely agree. I think I was actually that uh, person who did that. And I was met with open arms and a lot of love and a lot of respect. Um, the Black community at GW is amazing. I'm not gonna, not gonna lie, not gonna flex. It's just, it's just the truth. Um, so I want to thank you both for sitting down and speaking with me today. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. A special thanks to our host, Hannah Sturgis, as well as to our guests, Dr. Jordan West, Student Association President Howard Brookins III, and Executive Vice President Brandon Hill. To learn more about those featured on this episode and more about GW's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Community Engagement, please visit us at undergraduate.admissions.gwu.edu. Support for this podcast is provided by the GW Office of Undergraduate Admissions.
The producers of this podcast are Rebecca Durango and Hannah Sturgis. Tune in next time to find out more about our GW community, Unfiltered.